morning again, church. Guys, good morning again, church. (laughs) And it is so good to be here this morning. In honor of Christmas, we're doing things a bit differently. And as an elder-led church, we're blessed to have multiple men in leadership uh, as pastors and as lay elders who are equipped to handle the Word of God. And so because of that, I'll share a brief sermonette or homily sketch from Scripture, uh, as well as Matt Furman a little bit later in our service. And then the third and final installment of this three-part series, which we're calling Behold Him, will happen to, uh, Excuse me, tonight. I almost said tomorrow. Don't come tomorrow. No one will be here. Uh, you can... Uh, tonight will be the culmination of that. So morning and evening are not identical services. If you haven't yet made plans to come back this evening, we would encourage you to do so. It'll be a candlelit service, uh, and we will have uh, the culmination of this series of messages. But for now, uh, open in the Bibles in the pews in front of you, if you would be so kind, to Genesis chapter 3, to the text that we just read. This is easy. This is on page 2 of the Bibles in front of you. And if you are not the proud owner of your own copy of Scripture, then you are welcome to keep the Bible in the pew in front of you that you're holding. That can be yours on the sole condition that you commit to read it and treasuring it. That would be the gift of our church to you at Christmas. And as we've just read this text from Genesis, I've been given the Well, the unenviable, easy for me to say, I've been given the unenviable task of starting this three-part series by talking about the problem of Christmas. Well, what is the problem of Christmas? Who wants to talk about that on Christmas Eve, after all? Of course, all sorts of things come to mind that are problematic. Is it the materialism? Is it the consumerism, perhaps, that afflicts this time of year? not referring to either of those things, nor am I referring to the alleged pagan origins of this day, which, by the way, are untrue, but I'm not referring to that either. The problem I'm referring to is not any problem with Christmas, but rather the promise which Christmas is intended to solve. Now, 2,000 years ago, at the time of Christ coming into the world, there was a lot of problems that needed solving. There was a political problem. There was a tyrannical, idolatrous state subjugating people in their own land, subjugating even the very people of God, something that, of course, we moderns could never relate to happening in the world. But that's not the problem that Christmas is intended to solve, strictly speaking. Politics, after all, is just the fruit of something else. It's downstream from culture. There is also a cultural problem. And in the day of Jesus, there was widespread licentiousness, moral decay, injustice, sexual perversion, and decadence on the left, as well as cold, dead religious formalism on the right. But that wasn't the problem either. See, culture itself is also downstream from the cultus, or that which is sacred, or that which we behold. The problem of Christmas was actually far more basic. It's a human problem. And here's the problem of Christmas. It's this, that a unique human had miraculously arrived in God's world with no earthly father, and when he first opened his eyes, he was surrounded by animals. At the time of his origin, even the stars sang 
for joy. And he was given a royal mission to live a perfect life, to obey God, and to deliver his people into an everlasting kingdom as a prophet, a priest, and a king, and ultimately to rule the world for the glory of God. Well, you may be thinking, okay, I'm not hearing the problem yet, but what I just described was not concerning the babe in the manger with which we're acquainted, but rather a full-grown man in a garden, not referring to the birth of Christ, but to the creation of the first man, Adam, whom Romans 5.14 tells us was a type of the one who was to come. The problem of Christmas is exactly this text which we just read from Genesis, Genesis chapter 3. And our first and only point in this brief message is simply this, that we cannot rightly celebrate the promise of Christmas without understanding the problem of Christmas, which is the curse of Adam's sin, which Christ came to undo. We have to plunge the depths and understand the disease before we can appreciate the cure. A sin and its curse, that is the compound problem that Christmas was designed to solve. Our problem is not merely political or cultural or moral, it is human. See, what we choose to behold, rather than beholding and adoring our God, is instead lesser things, things that cannot satisfy us, things, in fact, which God had prohibited. Look in verse 6 of the text we just read. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate also. So they chose to behold and treasure and gaze longingly upon the wrong thing, rather than all that God was for them. And our entire race has this same sin problem now. And perhaps this is your first time in church in a while. This is not the sort of problem that we have in December, like when you overindulge in a few extra holiday treats, and then you run a few extra miles on the treadmill next month to atone for it. It's not that kind of problem. This problem cannot be atoned for by even our best efforts, because this act was an act of high-handed rebellion made by the rulers and the progenitors of our human race. They fouled, and as a result, the whole team was penalized. Or in Adam's fall, goes the rhyme, sinned we all. And as a result, our race, together with our first parents in the garden, was expelled from the garden, barred from eternal life, and cast out of the presence of God. See, We're not just people on a treadmill trying to morally reform ourselves. We are hardcore sin addicts, wandering in a stupor around the open-air market of fleshly pleasures, spiraling out of control, filled with pride and lust and envy, having been cut off from our family in heaven and estranged from God the Father, running afoul of his law and inviting his wrath upon us as we careen towards the grave and hell. And naturally, you're thinking, this is a Christmas Eve sermon. This is rather depressing. But this is the picture that Scripture paints of our condition. To summarize the curse of sin in three brief statements, first, sin corrupts you. So our parents corrupted their own nature, and out of that nature, they give rise to a sinful race, a world of sinners like them. 
not only are we guilty in Adam, we are also guilty because of our actual sin. We all lie. We all lust. We all hate. We all bear false witness. We dishonor parents. We pilfer. We dishonor God's name. We place creative things above him, and we fail to give him the worship and the thanks that he is due. Scripture even corrupts the natural realm. Thorns now infest the ground, as the song says. Man's sin, because he was meant to rule the world, brought in all sorts of chaos and brokenness and disorder and disaster into this realm, and creation itself groans, Romans 8, for its liberation. Secondly, sin not only corrupts, it also subjugates you and it subjugates me. See, that serpent that we just read about is none other than Satan, Revelation 12 tells us, the demonic dragon of old who ensnares the world. And since we've abandoned God, we have no recourse against his power. Ephesians 2 says, we're dead in sin, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. And in Deuteronomy, we see that God gave all of the unbelieving nations over to the demons, to false gods, to principalities and powers, to take our sin problem and magnify it and use it and make it even worse. Sin corrupts, sin subjugates, and sin ends you. The wages of sin is death, Romans 6, 23. See, both pre-pandemic and post-pandemic, the all-cause mortality rate, that statistic, is 100%. Every one of us will leave this world and will stand before God because Hebrews 9.27, death is our court summons as sinners. We must all face this judge, and because he is good, and because he is just and righteous and perfect and pure and holy, he cannot let our sin go unaddressed. He hates the sight of our sin. Well, as we just read in the catechism, is there any way to escape punishment and be brought back into God's favor? And we know the answer is yes. God has reconciled us to himself by a redeemer. Amen? Amen. Listen to this promise in verse 15 of the text we just read. God cursing Satan in the form of this serpentine spiritual being here says, I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. So here we're told of this antithesis, this battle between light and dark, between the hordes of hell and the human race that will be at odds with each other continually until this promised child, this Messiah would come. And the serpent would nip at his heel. The serpent would try to overcome him, but his head would be crushed. The dragon would be defeated forever. See, despite the problem of sin, one was coming, but not on the clear morning of a new earth, but rather in the dark night of a fallen world. Not as a full-grown man, but as a helpless babe. Not into a paradise of earthly delights, but under a pagan empire. Not to be formed out of the dust, but out of a, the womb of a virgin. And not as man only, but as truly man and also truly God. This new Adam would not follow the dragon's wicked counsel, but his father's. He would not eat from a tree of death, but be nailed to it. 
becoming a tree of life for any who would behold him and would take of him and eat in faith. And his eyes would not close in death like Adam's did ages later, but would open again as he rose to rule the world and to crush the serpent of old beneath his ruling and reigning feet. So briefly, this holy child, this promised seed, solves all three problems of our sin. So sin corrupts us, number one, but our guilt is undone. Romans 5 says this, verse 19, For as by the one man's disobedience, that is Adam's, the many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience, that is the Lord Jesus Christ, the many will be made righteous. Our guilt is undone. Secondly, sin subjugates us, but its dominion is ended. We read this for the assurance of pardon. Galatians chapter 4 which starts with this statement, backing up one verse, Galatians 4, verse 3, in the same way we also, when we were children, were enslaved to the elementary principles or spirits, there's that principalities language again, of the world. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, so that we might receive adoption as sons. We're no longer slaves to the prince of the power of the air. We've been set free by the blood of Jesus Christ. And thirdly, sin ends us, but death itself is now defeated. 1 Corinthians 15 says, For as by a man came death, so as by Adam came death to the whole human race, by a man has come also the resurrection from the dead. Verse 22, For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. Brothers and sisters, this is the good news of Christmas. And many fail to appreciate this because we treat Christmas, this time of year, all of the trappings and traditions of it, sort of as the dessert at the end of a filling restaurant meal. And the waiter comes around, well, did you save room for dessert? Uh, no, but I'll have some of what you know, he's having or she's having. For many of us, we really don't prepare him room in our hearts, but our Christian friend or neighbor, or perhaps we are believers in Christ, but that friend or neighbor of ours who's a bit more pious than we, I'll have a little bit of what he or she is having in this season. But Christmas is not an optional dessert round at the end of an otherwise filling meal. Rather, it's the last life-saving morsel that you can get your hands on as we are starving in the wilderness. It's the cure to our terminal disease. It's the antidote to that which ails us. We have to cling to it with all of our being. See, we cannot be born again apart from him who was born of a virgin. We cannot be truly human apart from him who became human for us. We can't receive the kingdom like little children apart from him who literally subjected himself to becoming a child. And we cannot defeat the works of darkness without him who was born as the snake crusher, the dragon's bane. So what should we do? If we do not know him this morning, we are to repent, to turn from sin, to cast our gaze away from the things that we've embraced rather than God and to receive him in faith, to behold him. As the song says, let every heart prepare him Room. We are to embrace him with the repentant eyes of faith. And if you are here as a follower of Christ, as many of us are, 
and you've already made room for him in your heart, remember this, that the song, after it says, let every heart prepare him room, does not stop there. See, Jesus not only solves our sin problem, but all of the other problems that are downstream from our sin as well. Jesus says, I am making all things new. Christmas is the end of a world and the beginning of a new world. And so the hymn goes, No more let sins and sorrows grow, nor thorns infest the ground. That curse from Eden is undone. Why? Because he comes to make his blessings flow far as the curse is found. And so let us rejoice. Amen, church? Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your